The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams The podcast versions of the original Facebook Live readings during the coronavirus outbreak by Matthew Ogden, The Bearded Wit. Please bear in mind that as Facebook Live recordings, these are rough and ready, there are mistakes, there are a few trip-ups here and there, and there is laughter from the reader as he goes through and follows the humour himself along with you, the listener. We hope you enjoy listening to these and share liberally. Part 18 Good evening all. Good to see you all. Um, Virtually speaking, of course, I mean that. Um, You might have noticed a few few changes around the place. I've uh, put a nice little holding page thing and then the little overlay. Uh, so um, I just wanted to start by saying it's lovely to be back. Uh, I have actually missed doing these an awful lot. Uh, we've had uh, an amazing summer, actually, um, because when I started all this, as I'm sure many of you were aware, this was just done as a, a bit of fun for family and friends um, um, over here in, in Europe. Uh, and in the intervening period from the first time I did the first reading back in March to now, uh, we've ended up getting 32, no, it's the last time I checked, 32,000 listeners on the, on the podcast version of this. 32,000 of you are listening from all over the world in 65 different countries. It is mind-blowing, and I'm getting a, a stream of, of very lovely messages from people from all over the place. Uh, so it's been it's been tremendously uh, lovely to, to, to see how this is just sort of taken on a bit of a life of its own so thank you all of you uh for uh for taking part and being a part of of what is just uh, a huge amount of fun for me uh, and and i hope it is for you you guys too so uh, i did promise i needed to give a one of my one of my fans one of one of the eagled eyed uh uh listeners um, <laughs> Jason Van Meter, I think from Ohio in the, the US, I needed to give you a name check because uh, when I released the last tranche of the podcasts, I actually managed to miss an entire episode. Uh, and he sort of wrote to me saying, I, I think I think there's a bit of a leap here. Did you miss something? Because it doesn't make that much sense you start talking in the the recap about some stuff that i don't know has happened uh so i thought no, no, absolutely not i didn't make a mistake at all checked and i'd missed an entire hour and a half of of reading which i then uh, updated so they are the, the podcasts are all up to date now so uh, thank you so much uh, for letting us know about that jason uh, everyone appreciates that so uh, a heads up to uh, or a shout out to jason for that and a, th- a big thank you to, to literally the many 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 of you from all over the world that have written to me if i haven't already replied i apologize i will get to you uh, but it, it make it is so heartwarming to, to get your messages that this is clearly something that is is uh, it's giving you something good uh, uh, to, to, to enjoy so I enjoy it you enjoy it we're all quids in so enough of the schmutzy stuff uh, quick very quick recap we are now three books into the five book trilogy yeah, I know, trilogy. It was intentional, I think. Um, so we've, we've we've checked off the list. We've done The Hitchhiker's Guide. We've done The Restaurant at the End of the Universe. And we've done Life of the Universe and everything. So we have two left. Uh, I'm not going to read the introduction uh, to this edition, um, which is the, the next book, which is So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, uh, because... Uh, there are some spoilers in it and I don't know how many of you are listening to this for the first time or, or would rather not have those spoilers so I'm not going to read that it's a, it's a, uh, written by Neil Gaiman uh, the fantastic uh, sci-fi uh, writer who also collaborated on a number of things with Terry Pratchett as well who is uh, proving to be a popular choice for the next reading uh, once we get through all this lot uh, the plan is with this is to, of course to do it every Sunday evening um, for the foreseeable future until we get through the next two books some Sundays may not happen it is a life gets in the way things happen whatever Uh, but I will endeavor to try and keep it as consistent as possible for you guys as well so at the end of the last book 
we basically left uh, we'd, we'd gone through the cricket wars uh, or the second cricket wars um, and we'd uh, learnt about Haktar and, and our intrepid heroes had prevented the universe from being completely obliterated um, uh, more by luck than judgment I suspect although there was a bit of judgment let's be fair Trillian got had her stuff together on this one but nobody else seemed to uh, and um, basically everyone went their own separate ways at the end of it uh, the, the last book um, so uh, let's see where everybody is I'm sure we'll start gathering people together and find out um, so welcome one and all really happy to be back uh, sit back get your tea put your feet up uh, whatever you're doing enjoy and uh, uh, let's crack on okay so, so long and thanks for all the fish. Prologue. Far out in the uncharted backwaters of the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy lies a small, unregarded yellow sun. Orbiting this at a distance of roughly 92 million miles is an utterly insignificant little blue-green planet whose ape-descended lifeforms are so amazingly primitive that they still think that digital watches are a pretty neat idea. This planet has, or had, a problem, which was this. Most of the people living on it were unhappy for pretty much of the time. Many solutions were suggested for this problem, but most of these were largely concerned with the movements of small green bits of paper, which is odd, because on the whole it wasn't the small green bits of paper which were unhappy. And so the problem remained. Lots of people were mean, and most of them were unhappy, even the ones with digital watches. Many were increasingly of the opinion that they'd all made a big mistake in coming down from the trees in the first place, and some of them said that even the trees had been a bad move and that no one should have even left the oceans. And then, one Thursday, nearly 2,000 years after one man had been nailed to a tree for saying how great it would be to be nice to people for a change, a girl sitting on her own in a small cafe in Rickmansworth suddenly realised what it was that had been going wrong all this time. And she finally knew how the world could be made good and happy. This time it was right, it would work, and no one would have to get nailed to anything. Sadly, however, before she could get to a phone to tell anyone about it, the Earth was unexpectedly demolished to make way for a new hyperspace bypass. And so the idea was lost, seemingly forever. This is her story. One. That evening, it was dark early, which was normal for the time of year. It was cold and windy, which was normal. It started to rain, which was particularly normal. A spacecraft landed, which was not. There was nobody around to see it except for some spectacular spectacularly stupid quadrupeds who hadn't the faintest idea what to make of it or whether they were meant to make anything out of it at all or eat it or what so they did what they did to everything which was to run away from it and try to hide under each other which never worked it slipped down out of the clouds seemingly balanced on a single beam of light from a, from a distance you would have scarcely noticed it scarcely noticed it through the lightning and the storm clouds but seen from close to it was strangely beautiful a grey craft of elegantly sculpted form quite small of course one never has the slightest notion what size or shape different species are going to turn out to be. But if you were to take the findings of the latest mid-galactic census report as any kind of accurate guide to statistical averages, you would probably guess that the craft would hold about six people, and you'd be right. You'd probably guess that anyway. The census report, like most such surveys, had cost an awful lot of money and didn't tell anybody anything they didn't already know, except that every single person in the galaxy had 2.4 legs and owned a hyena. Since this was clearly not true, the whole thing had eventually to be scrapped. The craft slid quietly down through the rain, its dim operating lights wrapping it in tasteful rainbows. It hummed very quietly, 
A hum which became a gradually louder th- and louder and deeper. Sorry, a hum which became gradually louder and deeper as it approached the ground, and which at, at uh, and which at an altitude of six inches became a heavy throb. At last, it dropped and was quiet. A hatchway opened. A short flight of steps unfolded itself. A light appeared in the opening, a bright light, streaming out into the wet night, and shadows moved within. A tall figure appeared in the light, looked around, flinched, and hurried down the steps, carrying a large shopping bag under its arm. It turned and gave a single abrupt wave back to the ship, and already the rain was streaming through its hair. "'Thank you!' it called. "'Thank you very—' He was interrupted by a sharp crack of thunder. He glanced up apprehensively, and in response to a sudden thought, quickly started to rummage through the large plastic shopping bag, which he now discovered had a hole in the bottom. It had large characters printed on the side, which read, to anyone who could decipher their Centauran alphabet, "'Duty-free Megamarket, Port Braster, Alpha Centauri. Be like the 22nd elephant with heated value in space. Bark!' "'Hold on!' the figure called, waving at the ship. The steps, which had started to fold themselves back through the hatchway, stopped and re-unfolded, and allowed him back in. He emerged again a few seconds later, carrying a battered and threadbare towel, which he shoved into the bag. He waved again, hoisted the bag under his arm, and started to run for the shelter of some trees, as behind him the spacecraft had already begun its ascent. Lightning flitted through the sky and made the figure pause for a moment and then hurry onwards. Revising his path to give the trees a wide berth, he moved swiftly across the ground, slipping here and there, hunching himself against the rain which was falling now with ever-increasing concentration, as if being pulled from the sky. His feet sloshed through the mud. Thunder grumbled over the hills. He pointlessly wiped the rain off his face and stumbled on. More lights. Not lightning this time, but more diffused and dimmer lights which played slowly over the horizon and faded. The figure paused again on seeing them, and then redoubled his pace, making directly towards the point on the horizon at which they had appeared. And now the ground was becoming steeper, sloping upwards, and after another two or three hundred yards it led at last to an obstacle. The figure paused to examine the barrier, and then dropped the bag he was carrying over it, before climbing over himself. Hardly had the figure touched the ground on the other side, when there came sweeping out of the rain towards him a machine, lights streaming through the wall of water. The figure pressed back as the machine streaked towards him. It was a low, bulbous shape, like a small whale surfing. "'sleek, grey and rounded and moving at terrifying speed. "'The figure instinctively threw up his hands to protect himself, "'but was hit only by a sluice of water "'as the machine swept past and off into the night. "'It was illuminated briefly by another flicker of lightning crossing the sky, "'which allowed the soaked figure by the roadside a split second "'to read the small sign at the back of the machine before it disappeared.' To the figure's apparent incredulous astonishment, the sign read, My other car is also a Porsche. Rob McKenna was a miserable bastard, and he knew it because he'd had a lot of people pointed out to him over the years, and saw no reason to disagree with them, except the obvious one, which was that he liked disagreeing with people particularly people he disliked, which included, at the last count, everybody. He heaved a sigh and shoved down a gear. The hill was beginning to steepen, and his lorry was heavy with Danish thermostatic radiator controls. It wasn't that he was naturally predisposed to be so surly, at least he hoped not, 
It was just the rain which got him down. Always the rain. It was raining now, for a change. It was a particular type of rain that he particularly disliked, particularly when he was driving. He had a number for it. It was rain type 17. He had read somewhere that Eskimos had over 200 different words for snow, without which their conversation would probably have got very monotonous. So they would distinguish between thin snow and thick snow, light snow and heavy snow, sludgy snow, brittle snow, snow that came in flurries, snow that came in drifts. Snow that came in on the bottom of your neighbour's boots all over your nice clean igloo floor. The snows of winter, the snows of spring, the snows you remember from your childhood that were so much better than any of your modern snow. Fine snow, feathery snow, hill snow, valley snow. Snow that falls in the morning, snow that falls at night, snow that falls all of a sudden just when you were going to go out fishing and snow that, despite all your efforts to train them, the huskies have pissed on. Rob McKenna had 231 different types of rain entered in his little book, and he didn't like any of them. He shifted down another gear, and the lorry heaved its revs up. It grumbled in a comfortable sort of way about all the Danish thermostatic radiator controls it was carrying. Since he had left Denmark the previous afternoon, he had been through types 33, light pricking drizzle which made the road slippery, 39, heavy spotting, 47 to 51, vertical light drizzle through to sharply slanting light to moderate drizzle freshening, 87 and 88, two finely distinguished varieties of vertical torrential downpour, 100, post-downpour squalling, cold, all the sea storm types between 192 and 213 at once, 123, 124, 126, 127, mild and intermediate cold gusting, regular and syncopated cab drumming, 11, breezy droplets, and now his least favourite of all, 17. Rain 17 was a dirty bladder battering against his windscreen so hard that it didn't make much odds whether he had his wipers on or off. He tested this theory by turning them off briefly, but as it turned out the visibility did get quite a lot worse. It just failed to get better again when he turned them back on. In fact, one of the wiper blades began to flap off. Swish, 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 flop, swish, swish, flop, swish, swish, flop, swish, flop, swish, flop, 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 scrape. He pounded his steering wheel, kicked the floor, thumped his cassette player till it suddenly started playing Barry Manilow, thumped it again until it stopped, and swore and swore and swore and swore and swore. It was at the very moment that his fury was peaking that there loomed swimmingly in his headlights, hardly visible through the bladder, a figure by the roadside. A poor bedraggled figure, strangely attired, wetter than an otter in a washing machine, and hitchhiking. Poor miserable sod, thought Rob McKenna to himself, realising here was someone with a better right to feel hard done by than even himself. Must be chilled to the bone. Stupid to be out hitching on a filthy night like this. All you get is cold, wet and lorries driving through puddles at you. He shook his head grimly, heaved another sigh, gave the wheel a turn and hit a large sheet of water square on. See what I mean? he thought to himself as he ploughed swiftly through it. You get some right bastards on the road. Splattered in his rear-view mirror, a couple of seconds later was the reflection of the hitchhiker, drenched by the roadside. For a moment he felt good about this. 
A moment or two later, he felt bad about feeling good about it. Then he felt good about feeling bad about feeling good about it, and, satisfied, drove on into the night. At least it made up for having finally been overtaken by that Porsche he'd been diligently blocking for the last twenty miles. And, as he drove on, the rain clouds dragged down the sky after him, for, though he did not know it, Rob McKenna was a rain god. All he knew was that his working days were miserable and that he had a succession of lousy holidays. All the clouds knew was that they loved him and wanted to be near him, to cherish him and to water him. Slubberty. The next two lorries were not driven by rain gods, but they did exactly the same thing. The figure trudged, or rather sloshed onwards, till the hill resumed and the treacherous sheet of water was left behind. After a while, the rain began to ease and the moon put in a brief appearance from behind the clouds. A Renault drove by, and its driver made a frantic and complex signal to the trudging figure to indicate that normally he would have been delighted to give the figure a lift, only he couldn't this time because he wasn't going in the direction that the figure wanted to go, whatever direction that might be, and he was sure that the figure would understand. He concluded the signal with a cheery thumbs-up sign, as if to say that he hoped the figure felt really fine about being cold and almost terminally wet, and he would catch him next time around. A figure trudged on. A Fiat passed and did exactly the same as the Renault. A Maxi passed on the other side of the road and flashed its lights at the slowly plodding figure. Though whether this was meant to convey a hello or sorry we're not going the other way or hey look there's someone in the rain what a jerk was entirely unclear. A green strip across the top of the windscreen indicated that whatever the message was it came from Steve and Carola. The storm had now definitely abated, and what thunder there was now grumbled over more distant hills, like a man saying, and another thing, twenty minutes after admitting he's lost the argument. The air was clearer now, and the night cold. Sound travelled rather well. The lost figure, shivering desperately, presented a reached, presently reached a junction, where a side road turned off to the left. Opposite the turning stood a signpost, which the figure suddenly hurried to and studied with feverish curiosity, only twisting away from it as another car passed by suddenly, and another. The first whisked by with complete disregard, the second flashed mening, uh, meaninglessly. Ford Cortina passed and put on its brakes. Lurching with surprise, the figure bundled his bag to his chest and hurried towards the car, but at the last moment the Cortina spun its wheels in the wet and careered off up the road rather amusingly. The figure slowed to a stop and stood there, lost and dejected. As it chanced, the following day the driver of the Cortina went into hospital to have his appendix out, only due to a rather amusing mix-up, the surgeon removed his leg, in error, and before the appendectomy could be rescheduled, the appendicitis completely complicated into an entertainingly serious case of peritonitis, and justice, in its way, was therefore served. The figure trudged on. A Saab drew to a halt beside him. Its window wound down, and a friendly voice said, "'Have you come far?' The figure turned towards it. He stopped and grasped the handle of the door. The figure, the car, and its door handle were all on a planet called the Earth, a world whose entire entry in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy comprised the two words, 
mostly harmless. The man who wrote this entry was called Ford Prefect, and he was, at this precise moment, on a far-from-harmless world, sitting in a far-from-harmless bar, recklessly causing trouble. Whether it was because he was drunk, ill, or suicidally insane would not have been apparent to a casual observer, and indeed there were no casual observers in the old pink dog bar on the lower south side of Handold City, because it wasn't the sort of place you could afford to do things casually in if you wanted to stay alive. Any observers in the place would have been mean hawk-like observers, heavily armed, with painful throbbings in their heads, which caused them to do crazy things when they observed things they didn't like. One of those nasty hushes had descended on the place, a sort of missile crisis sort of hush. Even the evil-looking bird perched on a rod in the bar had stopped screeching out the names and addresses of local contract killers, which was a service that it provided for free. All eyes were on Ford Prefect. Some of them were on Storks. The particular way in which he was choosing to die recklessly with death, uh, dice, <laughs> possibly die, to dice recklessly with death today was by trying to pay for a drinks bill the size of a small defence budget with an American Express card, which was not acceptable anywhere in the known universe. "'What are you worried about?' he asked in a cheery kind of voice. "'The expiration date? "'Have you guys never heard of neo-relativity out here? "'There's whole new areas of physics which could take care of this sort of thing. "'Time dilation effects, temporal realistics. "'We are not worried about the expiration date,' said the man to whom he addressed these remarks, "'who was a dangerous barman in a dangerous city.' His voice was a slow, soft purr, like the low, soft purr made by the opening of an ICBM silo. A hand like the side of a, like a side of meat tapped on the bar top, lightly denting it. "'Well, that's good, then,' said Ford, packing his satchel and preparing to leave. The tapping finger reached out, and rested lightly on the shoulder of Ford Prefect. It prevented him from leaving. Although the finger was attached to a slab-like hand, and the hand was attached to a club-like forearm, the forearm wasn't attached to anything at all, except in the metaphorical sense that it was attached by a fierce dog-like loyalty to the bar which was its home. It had previously been more conventionally attached to the original owner of the bar, who on his deathbed had unexpectedly bequeathed it to medical science. Medical science had decided they didn't really like the look of it, and had bequeathed it right back to the old pink dog bar. The new barman didn't believe in the supernatural or poltergeist or anything kooky like that. He just knew a useful ally when he saw one. The hand sat on the bar. It took orders, it served drinks, it dealt murderously with people who behaved as if they wanted to be murdered, and Ford Prefect sat still. "'We are not worried about the expiration date,' repeated the barman, satisfied that he now had Ford Prefect's full attention. "'We are worried about the entire piece of plastic.' "'What?' said Ford. He seemed a little taken aback. "'This,' said the barman, holding out the card as if it was a small fish whose soul had three weeks earlier winged its way to the land where fish are eternally blessed, "'this we don't accept.' Ford wondered briefly whether to raise the fact that he didn't have any other means of payment on him, but decided for the moment to soldier on. The disembodied hand was now grasping his shoulder lightly, but firmly, between its finger and thumb. "'But you don't understand,' said Ford, his expression slowly ripening into a little taken-abackness, into rank incredulity. 
This is, is the American Express card. It is the finest way of settling bills known to man. Haven't you read their junk mail? The cheery quality of Ford's voice was beginning to grate on the barman's ears. It sounded like someone relentlessly playing the kazoo during one of the more sombre passages of a war requiem. One of the bones in Ford's shoulder began to grate against another one of the bones in his shoulder in a way that suggested that the hand had learnt the principles of pain from a highly skilled chiropractor. He hoped he could get this business settled before the hand decided to grate one of the bones in his shoulder against any of the bones in any different parts of his body. Luckily, the shoulder it was holding was not the one he had his satchel slung over. The barman slid the card back across the bar to Ford. We have never, he said with muted savagery, heard of this thing. This was hardly surprising. Ford had only acquired it through a serious computer error towards the end of the fifteen-year sojourn he had spent on the planet Earth. Exactly how serious the American Express Company had got to know very rapidly, and the increasingly strident and panic-stricken demands of its debt collection department were only silenced by the unexpected demolition of the entire planet by the Vogons to make way for a new hyperspace bypass. He had kept it ever since because he found it useful to carry a form of currency that no one would accept. Credit, he said. Ah! These two words were usually coupled together in the old pink dog bar. I thought, gasped Ford, that this was meant to be a class establishment. He glanced around at the motley collection of thugs, pimps and record company executives that skulked on the edges of the dim pools of light with which the dark shadows of the bar's inner recesses were pitted. They were all very deliberately looking in any direction but his now, carefully picking up the threads of their former conversations about murders, drug rings and music publishing deals. They knew what would happen and didn't want to watch in case it put them off their drinks. "'You are going to die, boy,' said the barman, quietly, at Ford Prefect, and the evidence was on his side. The bar used to have one of those signs hanging up which said, "'Please don't ask for credit, as a punch in the mouth often offends.' But in the interest of strict accuracy, this was altered to, "'Please don't ask for credit, because having your throat torn out by a savage bird whilst a disembodied hand smashes your head against the bar often offends.' However, this made an unreadable mess of the notice, and anyway, didn't have the same ring to it, so it was taken down again. It was felt that the story would get out about of its own accord, and it had. Uh, "'Let me look at the bill again,' said Ford. He picked it up and studied it thoughtfully under the malevolent gaze of the barman and the equally malevolent gaze of the bird, which was currently gouging great furrows in the bar-top with its talons.' It was a rather lengthy piece of paper. I've had bills like that. At the bottom of it was a number which looked like one of those serial numbers you find on the underside of stereo sets, which always takes so long to copy onto the registration form. He had, after all, been in the bar all day. He had been drinking a lot of stuff with bubbles in it, and he had bought an awful lot of rounds for all the pimps, thugs and record executives, who suddenly couldn't remember who he was. He cleared his throat rather quietly and patted his pockets. There was, as he knew, nothing in them. He rested his hand lightly but firmly on the half-open flap of his satchel. The disembodied hand renewed its pressure on his right shoulder. "'You see,' said the barman, and his face seemed to wobble evilly in front of Ford's. I have a reputation to think of. You see that, don't you? This is it, thought Ford. There was nothing else for it. He had obeyed the rules. He had made a bona fide attempt to pay his bill, which had been rejected. He was now in danger of his life. Well, 
he said quietly. If it's your reputation. With a sudden flash of speed, he opened his satchel and slapped down on the bar top his copy of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the official card which said that he was a field researcher for the guide and absolutely not allowed to do what he was now doing. You want to write up? The barman's face stopped mid-wobble. The bird's talons stopped in mid-furrow. The hand slowly released its grip. That, said the barman in a barely audible whisper from between dry lips, will do nicely, sir. Another celebrity. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a powerful organ. Indeed, its influence is so prodigious that strict rules have had to be drawn up by its editorial staff to prevent its misuse. So none of its field researchers are allowed to accept any kind of services, discounts or preferential treatment of any kind in return for editorial favours, unless a. they have made a bona fide attempt to pay for a service in the normal way b. their lives would otherwise be in danger, or c. they really want to. Since invoking the third rule always involved giving the editor a cut, Ford always preferred to muck about with the first two. He stepped out along the street, walking briskly. The air was stifling, but he liked it because it was stifling city air, full of excitingly unpleasant smells, dangerous music, and the distant sound of warring police tribes. He carried his satchel with an easy swaying motion so that he could get a good swing at anyone who, didn't, who wanted to try and take it from him without asking. It contained everything he owned, which at the moment really wasn't much. A limousine careered down the street, dodging between the piles of burning garbage and frightening an old pack animal which lurched, screeching out of its way, stumbled against the window of a herbal remedy shop, set off a wailing alarm, blundered off down the street and then pretended to fall down the steps of a small pasta restaurant where it knew it would get photographed and fed. Ford was walking north. He thought it was probably on his way to the spaceport, but he had thought that before. He knew he was going through that part of the city where people's plans often changed quite abruptly. "'You want to have a good time?' said a voice from a doorway. Uh, "'As far as I can tell,' said Ford, I "'I'm having one. Thanks.' "'Are you rich?' said another. This made Ford laugh. He turned and opened his arms in a wide gesture. "'Do I look rich?' he said. Dunno, said the girl. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you'll get rich. I have a very special service for rich people. Oh, yes, said Ford, intrigued but careful. What's that? I tell him it's okay to be rich. Gunfire erupted from a window high above them, but it was only a bass player getting shot for playing the wrong riff three times in a row, and bass players are two a penny in Handold City. Ford stopped and peered into the dark doorway. You what? he said. The girl laughed and stepped forward a little out of the shadow. She was tall and had that kind of self-possessed shyness which is a great trick if you can do it. "'It's my big number,' she said. "'I have a master's degree in social economics "'and can be very convincing. "'People love it, especially in this city.' "'Goosenark,' said Ford Prefect, "'which was a special Beetlejuicean word he used "'when he knew he should say something "'but didn't know what it should be. "'He sat on a step, "'took from his satchel a bottle of that old jank spirit "'and a towel.' He opened the bottle and wiped the top of it with a towel, which had the opposite effect of the one intended, in that the old jank spirit instantly killed off millions of the germs which had slowly been building up on, on <laughs> building up a quite complex and enlightened civilization on the smellier patches of his towel. 
"'Want some?' he said, after he'd taken a swig himself. She shrugged and took the proffered bottle. They sat for a while, peacefully listening to the clamour of burglar alarms in the next block. "'As it happens, I'm owed a lot of money,' said Ford. "'So if I ever get hold of it, can I come and see you then, maybe?' "'Sure, I'll be here,' said the girl. "'So how much is a lot?' Fifteen years back pay. Four? Writing two words. Zarquan, said the girl. Which one took all the time? The first one. Once I got that second one, once I got that, the second one just came one afternoon after lunch. A huge electronic drum kit hurtled through the window high above them and smashed itself to bits on in, in the street in front of them. It soon became apparent that some of the burglar alarms on the next block had been deliberately set off by one police tribe in order to lay an ambush for the other. Cars with screaming sirens converged on the area, only to find themselves being picked off by copters which came thudding through the air between the city's mountainous tower blocks. In fact said Ford, having to shout now above the din. It wasn't quite like that. I wrote an awful lot, but they just cut it down. He took his copy of the guide back out of his satchel. And then the whole planet got demolished, he shouted. Really worthwhile job, eh? They've still got to pay me, though. You work for that thing? the girl yelled back. Yeah. Good number. "'You want to see the stuff I wrote?' he shouted. "'Before it gets erased. "'The new revisions are due to be released over, over tonight over the net. "'Someone must have found out by now "'that the planet I spent 15 years on has been demolished. "'They missed it on the last few revisions, "'so it can't escape their notice forever.' "'It's getting impossible to talk, isn't it?' she said. "'What?' "'She shrugged and pointed upwards. "'There was a copter above them now, "'which seemed to be involved in a side skirmish "'with the band upstairs. "'Smoke was billowing from the building. "'The sound engineer was hanging out of the window "'by his fingertips, "'and a maddened guitarist was beating on his fingers "'with a burning guitar. "'The helicopter was firing at all of them. "'Can we move?' "'They wandered down the street away from the noise.' They ran into a street theatre group which tried to do a short play for them about the problems of the inner city, but then gave up and disappeared into the small restaurant most recently patronised by the pack animal. All the time, Ford was poking at the interface panel of the guide. They ducked into an alleyway. Ford squatted on a garbage can while information began to flood all over the screen of the guide. He located his entry. Earth mostly harmless. Almost immediately, the screen became a mass of system messages. Here it comes, he said. Please wait, said the messages. Entries are being updated over the sub-ethernet. This entry is being revised. The system will be down for ten seconds. At the end of the alley, a steel-grey limousine crawled past. Hey, uh, look, said the girl. If you get paid, look me up. Ah, uh, I'm a working girl, and there are people over there who need me. I gotta go. She brushed aside Ford's half-articulated protests and left him sitting dejectedly on his garbage can, preparing to watch a large swathe of his working life being swept away electronically into the ether. Out in the street, things had calmed down a little. The police battle had moved off to other sectors of the city. The few surviving members of the rock band had agreed to recognise their musical differences and pursue solo careers. The street theatre group were re-emerging from the pasta restaurant with the pack animal, telling it that they would take it to a bar that they knew where it would be treated with a little respect. And a little way further on down, the steel-grey limousine was parked silently by the curbside. The girl hurried towards it. Behind her, in the darkness of the alley, a green flickering glow was bathing Ford Prefect's face, and his eyes were slowly widening in astonishment. From where he had expected to find nothing, an erased, closed-off entry, 
there was instead a continuous stream of data. Text, diagrams, figures and images, moving descriptions of surf on Australian beaches, yoghurt on Greek islands, restaurants to avoid in Los Angeles, currency deals to avoid in Istanbul, weather to avoid in London, and bars to go everywhere. Pages and pages of it. It was all there. Everything he had written. With a deepening frown of blank incomprehension, he went backwards and forwards through it, stopping here and there at various entries. Tips for aliens in New York. Land anywhere. Central Park. Anywhere. No one will care. Indeed, even notice. Surviving. Get a job as a cab driver immediately. A cab driver's job is to drive people anywhere they want to go to in big yellow machines called taxis. Don't worry if you don't know how the machine works and you can't speak the language, don't understand the geography or indeed the basic physics of the area, and have large green antennae growing out of your head. Believe me, this is the best way of staying in inconspicuous. If your body is really weird, try showing it to people on the streets for money. Amphibious life forms from any of the worlds in the Swalling, Noxious or Norzalia systems will particularly enjoy the East River, which is said to be richer in those lovely life-giving nutrients than the finest and most virulent laboratory slime ever achieved. Having fun. This is the big section. It is impossible to have more fun without electrocuting your pleasure centres. Ford flipped the switch, which he saw was now marked Mode Execute Ready, instead of the now old-fashioned Access Standby, which had so long ago replaced, been replaced by the appallingly Stone Age Off. This was a planet that he had seen completely destroyed, seen with his own two eyes, or rather blinded as he had been by the hellish disruption of air and light, felt with his own two feet as the ground had started to pound at him like a hammer, bucking, roaring, gripped by tidal waves of energy pouring out of the loathsome yellow Vogon ships, and then at last, five seconds after the moment he had determined as being the last possible moment they had already passed, the gently swinging nausea of dematerialization, as he and Arthur Dent had been beamed up through the atmosphere like a sports broadcast. There was no mistake. Sorry. There was no mistake. There couldn't have been. The Earth had definitely been destroyed. Definitely, definitely. Boiled away into space. And yet here he activated the guide again, was his own entry on how you would set about having a good time in Bournemouth, Dorset, England, which he had always prided himself on as being one of the most baroque pieces of invention that he had ever delivered. He read it again, and shook his head in sheer wonder. Suddenly he realised what the answer to the problem was, and it was this, that something very weird was happening, and that if something very weird was happening, he thought, he wanted it to be happening to him. He stashed the guide back into his satchel and hurried out onto the street again. Walking north again, he, pour, he passed a steel-grey limousine parked by the curbside, and from a nearby doorway he heard a soft voice, soft voice saying, It's okay, honey, it's really okay. You've got to learn to feel good about it. Look at the way the whole economy is structured. Ford grinned, detoured round the next block, which was now in flames, found a police helicopter which was standing unattended in the street, broke into it, strapped himself in, crossed his fingers, and sent it hurtling inexpertly into the sky. He weaved terrifyingly up through the canyoned walls of the city, and once clear of them, hurtled through the red and black pall of smoke which hung permanently above it. Ten minutes later, with all the copter's sirens blaring and its rapid-fire cannon blasting at random into the clouds, Ford Prefect brought it careering down among the gantries and landing lights at Handol Spaceport, where it settled like a gigantic, startled, and very, very noisy gnat. 
Since he hadn't damaged it too much, he was able to trade it in for a first-class ticket on the next ship leaving the system, and settled into one of its huge, voluptuous, body-hugging seats. This was going to be fun, he thought to himself, as the ship blinked silently across the insane distances of deep space, and the cabin service got into its full extravagant swing. Yes, please, he said to the cabin attendants whenever they glided up to offer him absolutely anything at all. He smiled with a curious kind of manic joy as he flipped again through the mysteriously reinstated entry on the planet Earth. He had a major piece of unfinished business that he would now be able to attend to, and was terribly pleased that life had suddenly furnished him with a serious goal to achieve. It suddenly occurred to him to wonder where Arthur Dent was, and if he knew. Arthur Dent was 1,437 light-years away in a Saab, and anxious. Behind him in the back seat was a girl who had made him crack his head on the door as he climbed in. He didn't know if it was just because it was the first female of his own species that he'd laid eyes on in years, or what it was, but he felt stupefied with... with... Oh, this is absurd, he told himself. Calm down, he told himself. You are not, he continued to himself in the firmest internal voice he could muster, in a fit and rational state. You have just hitchhiked over a hundred thousand light-years across the galaxy. You are very tired, a little confused, and extremely vulnerable. Relax. Don't panic. Concentrate on breathing deeply. He twisted round in his seat. Are you, are you sure she's all right? He said again. Beyond the fact that she was, to him heart-thumpingly beautiful, he could make out very little. How tall she was, how old she was, the, act shading of her, the exact shading of her hair, and nor could he ask her anything about herself because, sadly, she was completely unconscious. "'She's just drugged,' said her brother, shrugging, not moving his eyes from the road ahead. "'And, and that's all right, is it?' said Arthur, in alarm. "'Suits me.' he said. Ah, said Arthur. Ah, he added after a moment's thought. The conversation had so far been going astoundingly badly. After an initial flurry of opening hellos, he and Russell, the wonderful girl's brother's name was Russell, a name which to Arthur's mind always suggested burly men with blonde moustaches and blow-dried hair, who would, at the slightest provocation, start wearing velvet tuxedos and frilly shirt-fronts, and would then have to be forcefully restrained from commentating on snooker matches, had quickly discovered that they didn't like each other at all. Russell was a burly man. He had a blonde moustache. His hair was fine and blow-dried, to be fair to him, although Arthur didn't see any necessity for this beyond the sheer mental exercise of it, he, Arthur, was looking pretty grim himself. A man can't cross a hundred thousand light-years, mostly in other people's baggage compartments, without beginning to fray a little. And Arthur had frayed a lot. She's not a junkie said Russell, suddenly, as if he clearly thought that someone else in the car might be. She's under sedation. But, but that's terrible, said Arthur, twisting around to look at her again. She seemed to stir slightly, and her head slipped sideways on her shoulder. Her dark hair fell across her face, obscuring it. What's, what's, what's the matter with her? Is she ill? No, said Russell. "'Merely barking mad.' "'What?' said Arthur, horrified. "'Loopy. Completely bananas. "'I'm taking her back to the hospital and telling them to have another go. "'They let her out while she thought she was a hedgehog.' "'Eh? A hedgehog?' "'Russell hooted his horn fiercely at a car that came around the corner towards them, "'halfway onto their side of the road, making them swerve. "'The anger!' seemed to make him feel better. Well, maybe not a hedgehog, 
he said after he'd settled down again, though it would probably be simpler to deal with if she did. If somebody thinks they're a hedgehog, presumably, presumably you just give them a mirror and a few pictures of hedgehogs and tell them to sort it out for themselves, come down again when they feel better. At least medical science could deal with it, that's the point. Seems she's... that's not good enough for Fenny, though. Fenny? You know what I got her for Christmas? Well, no. Black's Medical Dictionary. <laughs> nice present. I thought so. Thousands of diseases in it, and all in alphabetical order. You say her name is Fenny? Yeah. Take your pick, I said. Anything in there can be dealt with. The proper drugs can be prescribed. But no, she has to have something different, just to make life difficult. She was like that at school, you know. Was she? She was. Fell over playing hockey and broke a bone nobody had heard of. Oh, I can see how that would be irritating, said Arthur doubtfully. He was rather disappointed to discover her name was Fenny. It was a rather silly, dispiriting name, such as an unlovely maiden aunt might vote herself if she couldn't sustain the name Fenella properly. Not that I wasn't sympathetic, continued Russell, but it did get a bit irritating. She was limping for months. He slowed down. Ah, this is your turning, isn't it? Ah, oh, no, said Arthur. F five miles further on, if, if that's all right. OK, said Russell, and after a very tiny pause to indicate that it wasn't, he speeded up again. It was, in fact, Arthur's turning, but he couldn't leave without finding something more about this girl, who seemed to have taken such a grip on his mind without even waking up. He could take either of the next two turnings. They led back to the village that had been his home, though what he would find there he hesitated to imagine. Familiar landmarks had been flitting by, ghost-like in the dark, giving rise to shudders, Pardon me. Familiar landmarks had been flitting by, ghost-like, in the dark, giving rise to the shudders that only very, very normal things can create when seen when the mind is unprepared for them, and in an unfamiliar light. By his own personal timescale, so far as he could estimate it, living as he had been under the alien rotations of distant suns, it was eight years since he had left. But what time had passed here he could hardly guess. Indeed, what events had passed here were beyond his exhausted comprehension, because this planet, his home, should not be here. Eight years ago, at lunchtime, this planet had been demolished, utterly destroyed, by the huge yellow Vogon ships which had hung in the lunchtime sky as if the law of gravity was no more than a local regulation, and breaking it no more than a parking offence. Delusions, said Russell. What, uh, what? said Arthur, startled out of his train of thought. She says she suffers from strange delusions that she's living in the real world. It's no good telling her that she is living in the real world, because she just says that's why the delusions are so strange. Don't know about you, but I find that kind of conversation pretty exhausting. Give her the tablets and piss off for a beer is my answer. I mean, you can only muck about so much, can't you? Arthur frowned, not for the first time. Well, and all this dreams and nightmare stuff and the doctors going on about strange jumps in her brainwave patterns. Jumps? This, said Fenny. Arthur whirled around in his seat and stared into her suddenly open but utterly vacant eyes. Whatever she was looking at wasn't in the car. Her eyes fluttered, her head jerked once, and then she was sleeping peacefully. Uh, what? What did she say? he asked anxiously. She said, this. This what? This what? How the heck should I know? This hedgehog, that chimney pot, the other pair of Don Alfonso's tweezers. She's barking mad. I thought I'd mentioned that. 
You don't seem to care very much. Arthur tried to say it as matter-of-factly as possible, but it didn't seem to work. Look, Buster. OK, look, I'm, I'm sorry. It's none of my business. I didn't mean it to sound like that, said Arthur. I know you care a lot, obviously, he added, lying. I, I know that you have to deal with it somehow. You just have to excuse me. I just hitched from the other side of the Horsehead Nebula. He stared furiously out of the window. He was astonished that, of all the sensations fighting for him in his head on this night as he returned to the home that he thought he had vanished, that, had, that he thought had vanished into oblivion forever, the one that was compelling him was an ob obsession with this bizarre girl of whom he knew nothing other than that she had said this to him, and that he wouldn't wish her brother on a Vogon. So, uh, what were the jumps, these, these, these jumps you mentioned? He went on to say as quickly as he could. Look, this is my sister. I don't even know why I'm talking to you about... Oh, OK, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Perhaps you'd better let me out. This is... At the moment he said it, it became impossible, because the storm which had passed them by suddenly erupted again lightning belted through the sky and someone seemed to be pouring something which closely resembled the Atlantic Ocean over them through a sieve. Russell swore and steered, stared, steered intently for a few seconds as the sky blattered at them. He worked out his anger by rashly accelerating to pass a lorry marked McKenna's All-Weather Haulage. The tension eased as the rain subsided. It started with all that business of the CIA agent they found in the reservoir, when everybody had all the hallucinations and everything. You remember? Arthur wondered for a moment whether to mention again that he had just hitchhiked back from the other side of the Horsehead Nebula, and was, for this and various other related and astounding reasons, a little out of touch with recent events. But he decided it would only confuse things. No, he said. That was the moment she cracked up. She was in a cafe somewhere. Rickmansworth, I think. Don't know what she was doing there. But that was where she cracked up. Apparently, she stood up, calmly announced that she'd undergone some extraordinarily revelation or something, wobbled a bit, looked confused, and finally collapsed screaming into an egg sandwich. Arthur winced. Very sorry to hear that, he said a little stiffly. Russell made a sort of grumping noise. So, so what, said Arthur, in an attempt to piece things together, so what was the CIA agent doing in the reservoir? Well, bobbing up and down, of course. He was dead. But what? Oh, come on. You remember all that stuff. The hallucinations. Everyone said it was a cock-up. The CIA trying experiments in drug warfare or something. Some crackpot theory that instead of invading a country, it would be much cheaper and more effective to make everyone think they'd been invaded. Um... What hallucinations were those, exactly? said Arthur in a rather quiet voice. What do you mean, what hallucinations? I'm talking about all that stuff with the big yellow ships. Everyone going crazy and saying that we're all going to die, and then pop, they vanished as the effect wore off. The CIA, CIA denied it, which meant, of course, it must be true. Arthur's head went a little swimmy. His hand grabbed at something to steady himself and gripped it tightly. His mouth made little opening and closing movements as if it was on his mind to say something, but nothing emerged. Anyway, continued Russell, whatever drug it was didn't seem to wear off so fast with Fenny. I was all for suing the CAA, but a lawyer friend of mine said it would be like trying to attack a lunatic asylum with a banana. So... He shrugged. The vogue. The, 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 Arthur squeaked. The, 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 the yellow. 
the yellow ships vanished well, of course they did they were hallucinations said russell and looked at arthur rather oddly are you trying to say you don't remember any of this where have you been for heaven's sake this was to arthur such an astonishingly good question that he half leapt out of his seat with a shock christ yelled russell fighting to control the car which was suddenly trying to skid he pulled it out of the path of an oncoming lorry and swerved up onto a grass bank as the car lurched to a halt the girl in the back was thrown against russell's seat and collapsed awkwardly arthur twisted round in horror is she all right he blurted out russell swept his hands angrily back through his blow-dried hair he tugged at his blonde moustache he turned to arthur would you please he said let go of the handbrake i think at coming up on ten past ten in the evening that this is a good point to call it a day for the evening thank you very much everybody for joining uh, of course i will be in due course uh, making copies of this for the podcast um in the meantime um i will see you next week have a great week uh, coming up Thank you very much for joining again. It's nice to be back and it's nice to have you all here. Look after yourselves and uh, see you next week.